This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Tegan Taylor, flying solo while Norman Swan takes a breather this week. Today, the havoc that fly-in, fly-out work can have on your sleep, the health habits of teens, when chemotherapy and radiation just sends cancer into hiding rather than killing it entirely, and... It's a source of dread during pregnancy, stillbirth. Earlier this year, we brought you research looking into how lockdowns were affecting maternity care in Melbourne. And at the time, it looked like there hadn't been an increase in stillbirths or other adverse outcomes. But more time and data has now shown that this isn't the case. There's a new study that brings together all the public hospitals in Metro Melbourne where babies are born and its lead author, lead investigator joins us now. Welcome, Lisa Hoy. Hi, Tegan. Thank you for having me. So we talked to you in March. What's changed since then? Well, since then, we've been able to do a much more in-depth analysis of what's happened during lockdown in Melbourne, and we now have a much longer study period to analyse. Unfortunately, as we all know, Melbourne is now the most lockdown city in the world, and using... um, you know, international uh, threshold for what is considered a lockdown. Melbourne has been under lockdown conditions for almost 12 months. So we've taken that data and um, had a more focused look at women who just had a singleton pregnancy, uh, who gave birth from 24 weeks um, or more and gave birth to a baby without a congenital abnormality. And we found, unfortunately, that there was a significant increase in stillbirth in the lockdown period compared to the two years before the onset of the pandemic. So what's the difference? So the rate of stillbirth uh, during uh, lockdown was 1 in 300 compared to 1 in 400 before the onset of lockdown. So if that, so what would the difference have been in terms of births in the lockdown period if it had stayed at the pre-pandemic rate? If the stillbirth rate had stayed at the pre-pandemic rate, we would have expected 62 stillbirths uh, during that lockdown year, but we observed 85, so 23 more than expected. It's so devastating. You can't even begin to imagine what it's like to go through that. Can you unpick what could be happening here? Is it the stress of being in lockdown or is it the maternity services themselves? What What are your theories at this stage? Look, there are many potential explanations for what happened. We know that these stillbirths disproportionately were seen in preterm um, preterm pregnancies, not term pregnancies. And we know that one of the greatest risk factors for a preterm stillbirth is fetal growth restriction or a baby that isn't uh, thriving normally in, in the womb. And normally we would detect these babies at risk of stillbirth either by physically examining a woman and checking that her pregnant belly is growing um, at each visit, or the woman would tell us if she felt that the baby wasn't moving as much as usual. What we're um, having to consider is that perhaps the reduction in face-to-face care and women's reluctance to come into hospital because they were perceived as hotspots of infection might have reduced our ability to to detect these pregnancies at risk of stillbirth. So what we'd like to do now is actually to do an in-depth individual case analysis of these um, these losses during lockdown and see if there were some avoidable factors that we can address. Yeah, I mean, you're saying that 
perhaps people didn't feel like they could come to hospital or that they weren't detecting uh, movement. What do you say to, I mean, there could be parents listening to this who that was them this past year. Maybe they're thinking it's their fault or that they weren't given adequate care. What are the implications of this research? Look, it's still um, early days in trying to unpick what what happened and we certainly don't want parents to be alarmed or feel guilty. What we do want women to know is that hospitals are safe places to come for care. We have all, all our hospitals have worked very hard to put in protocols to keep women safe from infection when they come to hospital and we want women to contact their maternity care provider if they have any concerns at all about their baby's movements or, or any other symptoms. So this data comes from the pre-vaccination period. So I think what we're seeing um, this year will be quite different in terms of people's level of anxiety um, and our concerns about infection in hospitals. But that would be our, you know, that would be our advice to all pregnant women. Please don't delay seeking care because you're worried about um, being exposed to infection in hospitals. What about systemic lessons from this? Because the pandemic's not over and we've seen that lockdowns as a public health measure, they're they're big blunt instruments, but they have been effective. We may see them in the future. What what are the lessons for maternity care services? I think the maternity sector actually has been responsible extremely responsive and agile in, in maintaining care to pregnant women um, and for newborns. As we know, pregnancy doesn't stop during a pandemic and babies still need to be born. So we rapidly transitioned to telehealth, which has been shown to be safe in in um, some, some health services, but we need to look at that in more depth. And there is a, um, a study that's proposed that has just received funding where we'll be doing a, a comparison of face-to-face versus telehealth to see what um, to see whether that's uh, a model of care that we need to investigate a bit more carefully. Um, telehealth is very good for some situations, but probably one size doesn't fit all and there may be some subgroups that uh, don't do as well with uh, remote or off-site care as others. So, so about two weeks ago, we we heard news that the Victorian maternity services ha- that had introduced the Safer Baby Bundle in the last three years, it, there was a report that it said that there'd been a decline in stillbirth. How does your uh, research fit with this uh, this other stat? Um, yes, I, 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 I'm aware of that research. Our population is a very specific one. It's just women who were pregnant uh, for a prolonged period during lockdown in metropolitan Melbourne, so just within the Ring of Steel, and it's only in public hospitals, so it's uh, about 75% of all births in metropolitan Melbourne, so it doesn't reflect the experience for the country as a whole, Um, and that's, uh, yeah, I think that's important to remember. So this is something that's happened in quite a specific geographical area in quite a specific period of time, but overall the rate of stillbirth is declining in Australia. Yes, yes, that's right. So we do know that some interventions do work and we do know that antenatal care is important. Um, We did know that women did engage early uh, to book in for antenatal care during the lockdown, so that was good. The proportion of women who had contact with um, a maternity care provider before 12 weeks was 
um, even higher than before lockdown. So we know that women engaged in antenatal care, but we do also know that women were more likely to give birth before arrival to hospital. So the number of women who gave birth an, <laughs> in an unintended way unintended at home, at home or, home birth. Yeah, yes. um, or in transit to the hospital increased during lockdown. And that suggests that women were delaying presentation in, in labour, um, presumably because of visitor restrictions, women were only allowed to have one support person, so perhaps they wished to stay at home with, um, you know, a, a larger group of support people before coming, or perhaps they were concerned about uh, the risk of infection coming in. So these are all questions that we need to answer with, sort of, um, you know, more patient-reported outcomes and, and uh, in-depth interviews. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you, Tegan. Associate Professor Lisa Hoy is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne and Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialist at the Mercy Hospital for Women and the Northern Hospital. Now, there's a saying that you should start as you mean to continue, and we know that in adolescence, we begin habits that can follow us through the rest of our lives. So, how healthy are the habits of Australian teens? A new study is examining just this, looking at things like physical activity, diet, sleep, screen time, as well as smoking and alcohol use. And they didn't know it at the time, but the research team happened to take their baseline assessments in the second half of 2019, just before the pandemic and lockdowns threw all of our healthy habits a curveball. Here to talk about the initial findings and what might come next is lead author Katrina Champion from the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Abuse at the University of Sydney. Hi, Katrina. Hi, thanks for having me. So give us a snapshot of teens' health habits at the end of 2019. Were there any strong themes that stood out to you? So we conducted a survey among over 6,500 teens across Australia and what we found was that most of them were they were spending too much time on screens, so about 86% were exceeding national, recommend, national recommendations around screen time. Uh, most weren't uh, getting enough physical activity and most weren't meeting recommendations around sleep. And perhaps most concerningly is that we found that uh, nearly two-thirds were reporting engagement in multiple unhealthy habits. So nearly two-thirds were engaging in three or more, and about a quarter were engaging in four or more of these unhealthy behaviours at the same time. So are this, is this new? We've heard things like physical activity guidelines. I don't think teens have <laughs> ever met those, or certainly not in recent years. Are there benefits to studying all of these different things at once? That's right. So our data on this kind of multiple risk factor engagement, that's quite new. We don't have particularly good data, um, certainly not in Australia, on this engagement in multiple risk behaviours. Um, and another key benefit of our study is that it's among such a large sample and spanning three different states. So we collected data uh, from students in New South Wales, Queensland and Western Australia. So you have been gathering data through the pandemic. You haven't crunched those numbers yet. But, I mean, things like screen time, physical acti inactivity, I mean, sleep, this pandemic has affected all of those things for all of us. Heaps of kids were doing home learning for most of the last year or so. What do you expect to see uh, when you crunch that, that pandemic data? So that's right. So we're collecting data. Um, so we, we conducted a survey in 2019, as you've said, before COVID-19 hit, and then we're doing annual surveys uh, from 2019 to 2022 to be able to look at just that, to see how um, COVID-19 might have had unintended implications for physical health behaviours. 
Um, but if we look at data internationally, there certainly is um, some evidence that health behaviours have gotten worse. So there's evidence that physical activity, for example, might have declined during the initial periods of COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, and this is probably likely due to the fact that things like organised sports, team sports weren't happening, uh, dance classes were cancelled, gyms were closed. So all those kind of normal ways that young people would typically engage in physical activity were suddenly taken away from them. Um, but at the same time, there's also other research that, that's found that physical activity has in fact increased or remained stable, which suggests that um, some teens might have actually been more resilient than we thought and were able to adapt to the changing um, situation that they found themselves in during the pandemic. What do we know about how maybe a year or a couple of years of disrupted health behaviour might have long-term effects in a teen's lifespan? So we know that these behaviours uh, that young people are engaging in in adolescence can have a pretty profound effect on their long-term outcomes. So they track over time. So if a young person is physically in inactive as an adolescent, they're more likely to be physically inactive as an adult. And then this kind of increases or, or accumulates their risk of uh, chronic diseases later in life, including things such as heart disease, cancers and type 2 diabetes. Um, I think it's important to note as well that that we would be expecting these behaviours to decline over the course of adolescence anyway. So even though we don't know for sure yet, there might be some um, impacts of COVID-19, we would be expecting to see a decline over time anyway in these health behaviours. So regardless of the impact of COVID, there really kind of does need to be some pretty urgent action to try to modify these behaviours among our teenagers. So you looked at kids in the early uh, half of their teen lives. How long are you planning to follow them for? That's right. So our baseline assessment was conducted when they were in year seven. So they're about 12 and a half years on average. And then we're following them up right up until they're aged about 16. Um, we're collecting a whole range of data on their mental health as well as their physical health, because we know that they're all so interrelated. Um, and we're actually conducting a trial of a program that we've developed. So it's a web-based intervention called the Health for Life Study that tries to modify these um, important risk factors among young people early in life at the beginning of adolescence to see if we can improve their trajectories towards good health in adulthood. We'll have to get you back on to talk about those findings when you've got them. Katrina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Dr Katrina Champion is a Senior Research Fellow at the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use, not Abuse, at the University of Sydney. I'm Tegan Taylor and you're listening to RN's Health Report. If you live in Australia, there's a decent chance you know a fly-in, fly-out worker, FIFO worker, we know what that, what that stands for. Maybe you even are one. We're a big nation for FIFO work with mines in remote parts of the country. But while the work can be lucrative, the rosters are punishing. So what effect does this have on workers' sleep health? Well, we don't really know because there hasn't been much research on it until now. Ian Dunican is an author on a new paper looking at sleep health and FIFO work, and he's with us now. Hi, Ian. Good afternoon, Tegan. So you call this the largest study of its kind. It only had 75 people in it. What does that, yeah, what does that tell us about the, the rest of the studies? Uh, it tells us that we have a lot of work still to do. And whilst this is the largest study uh, to date in mining fly-on-fly-out in Australia and even the world, um, we, we still have a lot of work to do in this space. But I think what the benefit is of this paper is that we've established a baseline for further researchers. And more importantly, we've made some um, improvements and um, suggestions 
to, to make these rosters uh, easier and safer going forward as well. So what did you find? So in, in this research uh, study, Tegan, we had uh, 75 shift workers, as you said, on a two-on-one roster. So seven days and seven nights followed by a week off. There were 12-hour days, typically starting between five and half five in the morning and working then for 12 hours. We found that overall sleep was less than the seven to nine hours recommended per night. Uh, not surprising for those people who may be engaged in shift work. And after working night shift, people were only getting about five and a half hours of sleep per night. Now, what was surprising was that as the uh, roster went on from days to nights, we saw that the alertness declined and the risk increased over that time. And so by the time they had finished their 14 days straight on uh, on shift, or which comprised of the seven days and seven nights, that their alertness was quite low, which poses a risk when they fly home to uh, Perth and then have to commute home after working um, these 14 consecutive shifts. Right, so there's a real risk there at the very tail end of the shift. But we already do know that shift work is harmful. What's unique about FIFO that you see it needing to be studied as a, as a separate thing? Well, obviously, it's a massive part of our economy here in Australia, and it does provide a set of unique uh, circumstances compared to their shift work where people would be able to go home each night um, and spend each night in the comfort of their own home. In FIFO in Australia, we have people going to uh, remote areas. It's not like they're going to you know, a, a big town with infrastructure and so on. It's a remote camp, um, and it's really uh, can be challenging to get enough sleep each night and even to make time for exercise and uh, for social interaction. And we saw that in the study as well because we saw that there was uh, some hazardous levels of alcohol consumption as well, although we weren't able to pinpoint what, if that was after work or under time off. And we also found that BMI was quite high at 27. And what was probably more surprising was the high prevalence of risk for sleep disorders, which has not been looked at before in mining shift workers. And what we found that was approximately 60% of these shift workers were at risk of having a sleep disorder as classified by the Academy, American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And the most prevalent of those sleep disorders that we found to be potentially there was obstructive sleep apnea and shift work disorder. Right. So, I mean, you say 60%. How much weight can we put on this study given it's so small? Yeah, I think further studies have to be done. And in and in addition to that, we also would have to do clinical polysomnography to verify that these people had these sleep disorders. All we were able to do here was basically screen for the prevalence uh, of risk of sleep disorders. We did find some interesting associations, though. Basically, as older, the older people got for every year, their odds, the odds risk of OSA increased by 6%. And also, for every unit increase in BMI, the uh, risk of OSA increased by 19%, which uh, provides some interesting data in line with uh, general population statistics around basically the older we get and the heavier we get, the more at risk we are of having obstructive um, sleep apnea. Right, so these people are already at higher risk because of the work they do and then their weight and their um, the other lifestyle factors are playing into that as well. So your paper was about setting a baseline for, you know, what's what the uh, other research can build on. But you also do give recommendations to um, not basically just chuck FIFO out the window but sort of improve it. Can you talk us through what your recommendations are? Yeah, we're definitely not saying chuck FIFO out the window. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, enjoy working in these areas. And, you know, as I said before, it is a significant part of the economy. We broke, broke our recommendations for improvement into two um, sort of buckets. One was organisational responsibility and two was individuals. So the one thing we're advocating for um, initially is for organisations to review their shift and roster design. 
we're not saying that organizations have to work less hours, but it's more like a kind of a rejig of the hours of work, the start times, the finish times, the breaks, the sequence of the shifts and so on, where we can potentially look for opportunities to reduce risk, but also maintain productivity. And things like that um, can be very beneficial in terms of lowering risk. We're also advocating for uh, more sleep disorder screening within FIFO mining and potentially um, clinical PSG as well to verify these potential risk of sleep disorders. What's PSG? Uh, Sorry, polysomnography. So it's an in-laboratory gold standard test for uh, identifying sleep disorders. So um, comprised of uh, lots of electrodes on the head and on the body and on the the leg as well. so it's a, a quite a comprehensive test that has to be under, undergone for one night in the laboratory. And the final thing then is around sleep and performance fatigue management education for the people working in those environments to arm them with some information and education to uh, make some improvements themselves, which I think can be done around things like the BMI and the alcohol consumption. And then the final area is around for the individuals is basically, um, again, is using that information and knowledge to minimise alcohol consumption, maintain a healthy body weight, and also present fit for work each day um, at the start of the day shift or night shift. So that's a hell of a wish list. Um, Just really briefly, (laughs) if you could only get one thing as a result of your study, what would it be? It definitely will be the organisational design of shifts and rosters. It's what we create is what we get. And that's where we'll, you know, uh, get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of risk reduction. In general, when we redesign um, shift and roster cycles for businesses, we get between 25 and 35% reduction in risk straight away without impact on productivity. Thanks so much, Ian, for joining us. Excellent. Thank you, Tegan. Let's hope those uh, organisations are listening. Adjunct Associate Professor Ian Dunican from the School of Medical and Health Sciences at Edith Cowan University. With a cancer diagnosis, after the initial shock and then the treatments, which each take their own toll, can come a new fear will the cancer come back? Treatments like chemotherapy and radiation are designed to kill cancer cells, but sometimes they just send them into a dormant state called senescence, which researchers think might be behind some recurrent cancer. A team at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre has just begun an eight-year project aiming to understand cancer senescence, figure out what might trigger senescent cells to reawaken, and develop treatments to target these sleeping cancers. I spoke to group leader Shom Gol earlier. So when you think about your body or tissues in your body all made out of cells, most of your cells are either sitting there quietly or dividing at any given time. But very occasionally, when a cell gets damaged or injured in some way, it can enter this unique cellular state known as senescence. And when a cell decides that it's going to go down that senescent path, it changes dramatically. The first thing that is classical for a senescent cell is that it stopped dividing. Secondly, it changes shape. It also changes its size. And most importantly, senescent cells switch off and on hundreds of genes, which are not normally on and off in non-senescent cells. So they have a completely unique behavior as well. Most commonly, senescence has been studied in the context of aging. As we age, even through the process of healthy aging, our cells do sustain damage over the years. What my team is studying is cancer cells that have also entered this state of senescence and trying to understand how that might impact the way cancers respond to treatment and the way cancers behave. Someone gets chemotherapy or radiation therapy, that's designed to kill the cancer cells, but sometimes it sends them into this senescent state where they're basically like sleeping beauty. They're not doing anything, but they could be reanimated. That's exactly right. So 
all of our standard cancer treatments, such as chemotherapy, radiation treatments, and also some of the more modern cancer treatments that we use are, in an ideal world, supposed to kill a cancer cell and hence eradicate a tumor. But far too often, I think we all know that that doesn't happen and treatments work for a period of time and then stop working. And what's becoming clear is that one of the reasons for this is because some of the cancer cells, rather than die, enter this state of senescence in response to the injury that the treatment inflicts. And that might be considered all well and good because, as I mentioned, senescent cells are not dividing. However, what we've become clear on in recent years is that these senescent cells can be bad actors in the long term. And ultimately, these cells, as you say, can reawaken, can start dividing again, and ultimately threaten the patient's life. So how would they be doing bad things to your body if they're not dividing? The most concerning thing about these senescent cells is that over time, they will actually escape senescence. It's true that if these cells were put to sleep and stayed asleep forever, that we might be able to live with that. But because we know these cells will almost invariably escape senescence, that's why we need to try and target them at the point when they are asleep so we don't have to worry about future problems. Can you tell that it's a cancer cell that's still there but it's just not dividing? The answer is yes. We're particularly good at identifying senescent cells in the research lab. So often when we do experiments, we're looking at cancer cells growing in a dish. Sometimes we're looking at cancers growing in mice. And when we treat those cancer cells with chemotherapy and radiation, it's very easy to see when they've entered senescence. There is also good evidence and mounting evidence that the same exact process does occur in humans with cancer. Although for purely practical reasons of not being able to perform biopsy after biopsy of of a patient's tumour, we don't have as much evidence of senescence happening in human cancer, but we're we're very confident that the same processes do take place. Okay, so your cell hasn't died, it's gone into this senescent state, and you say that there is this chance that it could reawaken and and start growing again, which is obviously, well, I'm guessing, the biggest concern. What would trigger that? So that process of senescence escape, when a cell decides that it's time to reawaken, is a really poorly understood process. One of the big goals of our research is to understand what is it that might make a cell after months or even years suddenly reawaken. What we think might be going on there is that there are changes in the senescent cells, not DNA, but rather in what we call the senescent cells epigenome that lead it to start proliferating again. In other words, for some reason, certain genes that were switched off during senescence suddenly become switched on again, and they drive the cell to start proliferating, to start dividing. But the deeper question of why that happens is actually a black box at the moment and something we're very focused on understanding in the lab. So tell me about what your research is looking at now. So our research is really focused on two things. The first is understanding the biology of senescent cancer cells in much more detail. At the moment, our understanding of senescence in other contexts, such as aging, is moving along quite nicely. Our understanding of the biology of senescent cancer cells is still very superficial. The second big part of our research is to develop new treatments to kill these senescent cells. We don't think we can understand how we can kill them until we first understand what makes them tick. I was going to ask you what the solution is here, whether it's being able to identify them or if it's about being able to kill them. If you just can kill them, does it even matter if you can identify them in terms of treating patients? I think both aspects to this are are really important. The way it typically plays out is that a lot of the work 
understanding when senescence happens and then how we can kill those senescent cells will take place in the lab. And once we have developed some novel therapies that can target these senescent cells, we'll call them senotherapies, we would aim to move those pretty quickly into clinical trials in patients. How often is this happening where instead of dying, these cancer cells are going into this state? We think it's a very common problem. And I think the most clear piece of evidence to suggest this is that we know when patients have cancer that's, for example, spread to other organs, our current treatments very rarely are able to cure that person's cancer. If our current treatments were able to eradicate all cancer cells from a patient's body at that point, we would think senescence is not a common problem. However, what we often see is that a cancer will respond to certain treatments, will then sit in a stable state for some time, only to then regrow again in a more aggressive fashion. And the fact that that's so common lends us to believe that senescence is probably a common state in human cancer. The research that we will be doing initially will be focused on breast cancer, but we believe that the results we obtain are likely to be applicable to a broad range of cancers. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Shom Gol is a medical oncologist and group leader in the Laboratory Research Division at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. And that's been the Health Report for this week. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.